Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt, here with Nicholas Gates. We're at Gresser Vineyard. It's uh, May 28th, 2021. Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, yeah. The uh, first and biggest question to get started is why wine? Ooh, that's definitely a good one to start on. Uh, I mean, why not really? Because that's all that's ever, all I've ever really done, just kind of growing up with my dad as a winemaker. Uh, I mean, I think the only other job I've ever, ever really had was a soccer ref in high school. So <laughs> not a lot of experience in other industries to go then lie. Use, use that experience and um, and just growing up if like with our, with my, our our father having his own place if we wanted to see our dad a lot of the time it meant going into the vineyard and hanging out with him or doing small little jobs with him in, in the winery or the wineries he was working at tagging along so it was really the only thing that there ever really has been mm-hmm. So you mentioned your dad. Tell us, tell us about his kind of career in wine and and, and uh, what he was working on here. Uh, so my dad grew up in the Central Valley of California, like Lodi, so surrounded by grapes and agriculture growing up. And uh, his father was not in the industry in production, but uh, working for like a supply company and just random winery equipment. Um, so well, yeah, well, not a winery or winemaker himself. He was like in the industry. Um, and like like upstairs, I have a bottle of, it's unfortunately empty, but it's a 1977 bottle of port my dad made as a 17-year-old. So a 17-year-old making port is weird enough. But then he got his brother, who's an artist, to actually make a label for it. And it's, it says Gates Family Wines on it. And it's got an alcohol level, like the legal, it's not like the full-on Surgeon General warning, but it's got like legal information that a bottle of wine needs, 750 mils, alcohol level, it's, so it's, it's, it's like, it is, yeah, it's, I know I'm off topic, I've already forgot where we was going with that one. <laughs> just, just about your dad, kind of your dad's yeah. career, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah, it's like, even as a little kid, like, and so, it's, if you're a 17 year old making port, like you probably started making table wine much earlier. So it was always, always was wine. Um, and he got like, took the college path and went to Fresno State where he met my mom. Um, but before like deciding on college, he went to uh, interviews at both UC Davis and Fresno State and the UC Davis professor blew off the meeting and wasn't available. Um, and then so, at the Fresno State meeting, my dad really liked the, the person he was talking to and you know really liked what they were doing with the program. Um, so he was at Fresno State um, for, for winemaking. Viticulture and ology. Mm-hmm. Like went and got like like chemistry degrees. Like so he was doing extra stuff too. And so he, my dad was able to come into the industry with this really deep understanding that like I don't have. He was taught me little bits here and there, but it was definitely compared to people for myself it's a weird way to have learned um, because you meet the people who like have gone to college and they know all this technical information but sometimes they don't really know how to like move a barrel around the cellar like because they just don't have that type of experience and 
You know, like my dad taught me how to do, put a clamp on a hose in a tank one-handed as a little kid because he needed help. He needed that help because he was operating the pump at the other end. And he always, like that was, like, us little kids, we were just like little workers for him. Um, but like, so my dad, my dad did the college program, um, Fresno State, and moved up here shortly. He worked a little bit in California at like Paul Maison and Corbell, um, and some sort of like larger production wineries, um, and then moved up here. Um, but at the meeting with the Fresno State professor, the, the, the guy just asked him like, what do you, why do you want this degree? What do you want out of this? And my dad's words were, I want a small family-run winery in a forested setting. And then so looking around, that is exactly what he got. Like, my dad wasn't ever setting out to make, you know, the most amount of wine in Oregon. Like, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with A to Z doing, you know, close to half a million cases between their brands. But that's definitely not what my dad intended. Um, and so like the sizing of everything, like our winery is small, our vineyard is small compared to a lot of people. Um, but we also have to do all the, the hand labor ourselves. So small, small is what it needs to be for us. Um, but that's even so I, as an 18 year old, 17 year old, that's what he intended to have. Mm -hmm. um, and then moving up into Oregon, he, the story I was told from him is he came up, my mom stayed in California for a little bit. Um, my dad drove up in his Volkswagen bus and he was able to drive to every winery in the Willamette Valley in one day and drop off a paper resume. <laughs> um, so like one day where now, I'm, I mean, you guys would have a better idea how long like, visiting every winery would take, but it's not one day. <laughs> um, and so he, his first job when he got up here was at at the time, um, it was under the name Schaefer Vineyard and Cellars out in Gales Creek, Forest Grove. Um, it's gone through a couple different names now, and now Fossil and Fawn and Maloof Wines are out there. Um, but that was his first first job, and um, uh, I'm spacing on the Schaefer's Harvey. Harvey, yeah, Harvey. So the way the interview worked was they went into town and had lunch, and he interviewed my dad and. You know, I'll, I'll let you know, and my dad having come up here in his Volkswagen bus had nowhere permanent to stay or to go, and so he just asked him, can I, you know, camp here tonight on your property? And I guess my dad then went to one of the ponds near Gales Creek, caught a fish, came back and like cooked it outside of the van, and that, that impressed Harvey and was like, you get, you get it. you're willing to like camp in your van and eat a fish you just caught, like. You seem like you might be a hard worker or something along the lines of that. I'll, I'll give you a job. Um, so that, that was his first job. Um, and that's, he met uh, Mickey Schaefer through there. And so after Harvey passed away, we uh, eventually bought some fruit for her, made some wines for her as well um, before she retired a couple years ago. Um, so yeah, he was only at, at Schaefer for a handful of years, not like a tremendously long time. Um, and then I think the next place he went to was, at the time it was Veritas, now it's Shehalem. So right there as you come into Newburgh. And that is, that kind of brings it up to like around the time I was born. So he was working there for a little bit before I was born. And my mom had moved up to Oregon at this time and they lived in that little farmhouse. Um, so I did a little work for Stoller just or at the end of a harvest one year. And it was really cool because I got to go there and like, 
kind of peek around the house because I have all these photos in like my baby book of you know them holding me sitting on like the balcony at sunset kind of things and but like having never like driven up and seen the house it was really mm -hmm. cool let's mm -hmm. actually go back there um, but from there he kind of he worked there for a while and then my mom was kind of just like I'm over living in this hundred year old farmhouse it's incredibly cold we have a baby like Something else has to happen here, and... My dad, at the time, owned this plot of land in the old, the old Amity Hills. Nothing planted on it yet, but my dad knew something was special about this plot of land. Um, that being, other than my dad's cars, which were Porsches... He was really into his cars. Though That was the thing of value that he had, and so he sold that plot of land to be able to buy this house out in Forest Grove. That plot of land became Antikatera. <laughs> um, so he knew something special was going on with that, that, that plot of land. You know, very little topsoil, like it's, a lot of people wouldn't plant a lot of things there, but he knew something. <laughs> and so yeah, wasn't the most pleased to see a hundred dollar bottle of rosé pop out a few years after she got up here, but... Uh, maybe because he potentially wanted to do it himself, <laughs> but, or not not make a hundred dollar bottle, but like farm that because mm -hmm. he knew something something was going on there. Mm -hmm. um, but like that allowed my dad and my mom to buy a house, house out in Forest Grove, where my dad was the uh, winemaker at Laurel Ridge, which they've now moved to Carlton, but and now that's David Hill, um, and that is the winery where I would say like I grew up at. Um, they didn't really have like a cellar team, it was just my dad. Um, and so a lot of times, right around, around that time, a little, uh, shortly after that, my dad started working there for a couple of years, my parents divorced. Um, so if it was like our dad's time to have us, we were in the winery with him. It wasn't like, oh, let's take the day off and, and go to the beach or, you know, let's go to Oaks Park. <laughs> like it was, let's, let's go to the winery because I've got stuff to do there. Um, so yeah, just being able to run around a winery was pretty wonderful as a kid because, you know, he'd set us up with a little area and be like, oh, this is this is where you need to stay. And then he'd go off and do what he needed to do. And of course, we're, we're going everywhere through that winery. We're crawling in tanks. We're like running the top of like barrel stacks that are like two stack high. And we're running like across the tops of the barrels. Like stuff like I would be petrified if I ever saw my daughter doing now but like it was the most fun ever as a kid um, kind of nuts to see the farmhouse they have as the tasting room now because as a kid that was a haunted house it was <laughs> it was old and it was run down and there was definitely some ghosts or some poltergeists uh, but yeah definitely interesting to see that now um, and then from there my dad was uh, like an enologist at Montnor for a little bit and worked with Jacques who we then um, started custom crushing with later when we started our own brand at Tory Moore. Um, and so that was a really cool relationship that allowed us to have a little more freedom in the winery than a lot of custom crush clients would get. Just because he like, wasn't worried about my dad breaking equipment. Like, hey, I've worked with this guy, so mm -hmm. he knows how to operate all these, all these things in here. And, um, from there, I think it was just a little little bit of consulting work my dad did for like uh, a winery out near Helvetia, and that kind of brings it to like my dad and stepmom meeting, and then purchasing this place and planted in '98. 
Um, and then my dad farmed it and sold grapes for a handful of years. Um, like I know some of them went to like Apollonie and um, places like that. And then 2006 was the first like co commercial, like available vintage of Gresser wines. He'd always been making like little bits, like home stash wines off of it, like saving some of the fruit that we didn't sell. Mm -hmm. um, but 2006, yeah, was the first, first year. I guess for the record, I should ask you for your dad's name on camera too. Paul Gates. Paul Gates. <laughs> Paul, Gates. Paul Gates. Yeah. So you mentioned you, you you grew up around it, and you grew up in an interesting way because you had you said you had an a father who was educated in it and had worked a lot of places, and so you're you're kind of gleaning information along the way. So, at what point for you does it become something more than just sort of running around the winery while dad's working, and become something you're actually interested in doing yourself? It was. Then what I don't I don't really know. <laughs> like the way it kind of worked is like I was always involved every year in some way. Um, like the vineyard is up the hill from here, um, just like right up there. As a little kid, like I helped install the drip line um, and just random little jobs. Like I can still recall the way it was. It was a Christmas tree farm when we bought it, and I still remember like the fires we had, the bonfires from burning all those trees and like how warm that felt. And like, so there's like, even as a little kid, there was always little bits of involvement, but it was never like, this is what I'm going to do when I grow up. You know, like, I want to be like dad. I want to make wine. And it's the similar thing with my daughter. It's like not really even on her radar, um, which I think is kind of, I mean, I don't know how planned it was by my dad, but like not forcing us to do it and letting us choose to come help him was an important thing. Cause I think if the more you force your kids into stuff, they're going to be far less interested in wanting to do it. Um, and so there was never this pressure to get involved. Um, it was just occasional times he'd be like, Hey, I, I, I need some help right now. Y you and your brother are available. And we'd come out and, stay extra time out here and, and, and just, you know, do whatever he needed. Um, but there was one harvest and it was while I was in, I was in school at PCC for just photography. Um, and it was just the harvest he needed help for. And then just, I didn't go back to school after that, like got fairly close to finishing and then just start, kept making wine. I think that was like 2012. But yeah, starting from like after high school, like close to full-time hours out here, mostly vineyard stuff. Because um, still my dad was a little younger then and the wine, the wine stuff he could still do mostly by himself. Because mm -hmm. um, like, if you didn't notice as you drove up, we don't have a forklift. So like everything is done by hand. Um, we pick into like FYBs, like the, the yellow bins. <laughs> um, so like every everything is hand dumped into our distemmer crusher. Um, our distemmer crusher is run off of, at times we can switch it over so it's powered by a bicycle. And so we don't have to hand crank it. Um, and so yeah, there was, there was I guess there's, there, yeah, there was never one defining moment where it was like, this is my job. And it was, this is like, one day it was like, well shit, I guess this is what I do now. Okay, cool. <laughs> I get a drink of beer at lunch. Not gonna complain. <laughs> like, keep doing this. And then now it's how many ever years later, and it's still doing it. So, yeah. 
obviously the, the appeal is pretty obvious as a, as a kid being around all the stuff, but, I, but what's the appeal to you now or what was the appeal to you as you started working more? What about the work makes you want to do it? I mean, just being outside, just like looking around and you, this is where like the vast majority of what I'm doing is vineyard work. Um, the winery side takes up very little actual time because of our, our small size. But the, the vineyard is, is all year round, almost every day is up there. Something is always needing to be done or just general things on the property. Having a little bit of property means there's tons of stuff always to be done. Um, but like the appeal is just being outside and you get to, like once you know a property, you get to notice these small little things. And it's, so like over time, um, and as I notice them, I, like I write down dates of like, oh, this flower, I don't even know the name of the flower, but it's this little blue flower. And so it's starting to bloom. And so how many days after that do I start seeing, you know, like bud swell, like bud break, all these different little stages. And you can start to like have an idea of how many days you are away from these activities in the grapevine based on things that are going on all around. You just have to look a little deeper. Um, so if you have like golf course grass in your vineyard, like you're not gonna notice that. So you need weeds, you need it to look a little disheveled. You need all these different little plants because they're all operating on their own little timetable, but they all tie into each other. Um, so just picking up on small little things like that. Like it took years, but I noticed there's um, behind our vineyard is like 1500 acres of forested land. And I noticed towards the evening, a uh, bunch of crows would always fly west into that forest. And then I started noticing like, okay, there's a timing to that. They're there about 30 minutes before it's too dark for me to work. So if you're working with pruning shears and you know clipping, clipping shears, you don't really wanna work when it's dark because then you could chop your finger off. So it's like, I started noticing these birds flying. It's like, okay, now I kind of need to wrap up what I'm doing today so that I'm not finishing in the dark. And you, yeah, so I don't need a time. I don't need to Google what time sunset is. It's like, oh, these crows are telling me that it's almost dark. Um, and so it's, I, I, that's one major thing that I really enjoy is just like being more in tune with what's going on around me. Mm -hmm. um, and just like, you hear birds and like sometimes you see them fly and you're like, okay, why do those birds fly out of that forest? Like we had a neighbor like let us know they saw a black bear nearby. And so I'm like, that's the new concern for me. It's like, are those birds flying because of a black bear? Like we've had mountain lions in the area and on the property, but like, oh, the black bear, that's a new one. <laughs> Excellent. So that I'm not I'm trying to get too in tune with nature there, but I like the flowers, not the black bears. <laughs> At least not too close. Yeah, yeah. From from a distance with a fence between us. Okay. So tell me about the vineyard. You mentioned 1998 planted. What uh, what what what's unique about it? What what what's special about it? What's in there, and, and how has it kind of developed over time? Uh, so yeah, planted 98, um, and to RG rootstock, and that's one thing I found that's kind of typical of late 90s vineyard plantings is a lot of people liked RG. I'm finding less people like it now. Um, and so that would be like something that, if I was planting it brand new today, is something I would change, and it's all on RG. I'd have far more diversity within my rootstock. Um, and then, so in the vineyard, on that rootstock, we have Dijon 113, 115. Um, so I'm super familiar with those those two grapes, and then having worked in some other some other wineries and other vineyards, and it's 
less people get, you know, really excited about Pomard and Vadensville and Trip Seven, and it's like, well, I've grown them, but I don't, I don't know the winemaking side of those. So we have, and then we also have a small amount of UCD 29, um, which is like a cool little, like, there's not a lot of it left. It was one of these plantings that came up um, like early on, like I know, I mean, I'm fairly certain they've ripped it out recently to replant. Um, but Adelsheim's Brian Creek and Quarter Mile Vineyard, which were right above Jay Christopher, mm -hmm. um, had some of it. Um, and it came from a UC Davis, um, like a nursery. And it was originally brought into California, like after the gold rush, because you have all these people in California and the gold rush is like dying out. What do you got? How do you put all these people to work so that you just don't have this massive, like, unemployed population? And one of the, like, for that area um, above, like, the Sierra Nevada foothills, is they planted all sorts of crops just to see what can grow here, what could be successful. Um, and one of the clones they had in the vineyard was this UCD 29. And they decided grapes not so much in this area, and this plot of vineyard kind of just got forgotten, left alone, ignored. Um, and they, they went on with planting other things in the area. I'm not sure how, how far they went with that, but eventually um, a professor at UC Davis, I believe, went and you know found this, this site, which was, I think, the Jacksonville, Jacksonville Station, I think is what it was called. Um, and they brought it back, propagated it, and it was an accident. We didn't order it. It was an accident that it got shipped up to us uh, when we were planting the vineyard in, in the 90s. And it wasn't until you know you start seeing leaves that my dad's like, ah, right. Something slightly different. Um, so I think he uh, contacted OSU and got some clarification on what we had growing. Um, and so we don't have a ton of it. We've never vinified it separately from the, use, or from the Dijon clones. That is a goal of mine um, because it is what it can be known for is enhanced flavor earlier in its ripening stage. So in my mind, that's something that would work really well for a rosé or a sparkling wine. Um, so you still get that really nice acid, but flavor development that's beyond a lot of other Pinot clones. Um, so the goal is to be able to take some cuttings, get a little bit more of it, and get like a full barrel of just that. Mm -hmm. um, haven't gone as far as, you know, doing what uh, Antiquaterra does and drop in like the river stones to make, fill up the barrel. And I don't know, it's, I don't want to drop rocks. It sounds scary. <laughs> I get it. I've read about it, but it sounds scary. <laughs> um, so I'm just going to wait until I can actually fill a full barrel with it. Um, other than like the clonal selection of our vineyard, like the one little unique clone that we have, the, the most unique thing is that it's Burgundian spaced, so really, really tight. It's one by 1.5 meters, so no tractor whatsoever goes through our rows. Um, we're no-till, we haven't tilled since the planning. Um, the tractor can only go around the perimeter of the vineyard and we only really use it to mow that grass around the perimeter and then for harvest to move fruit. Otherwise, we're not operating a tractor daily in our vineyard. Um, and that was one of the big things that I noticed after going and working at other wineries and, and uh, like as a vineyard manager is like, we use a tremendous amount of diesel in, in larger scale viticulture. Tremendous amount. And 
you can have these like really strong beliefs in organics and biodynamics, but at the same time, you're using at least 15 gallons a day diesel during the summer to get your vineyard to look pretty in the way you want it. And here, we never have used like tremendous amounts because we're not, we're not operating inside the row, but we can use less, like we can definitely use less. And so like at this point, um, to spray the vineyard, we used to just bring all the material on the tractor and trailer up into the vineyard. And now it's easy enough just to be like, well, I'm just gonna wheelbarrow it up the hill. Like it's, it's more work for me. Like it's, I don't enjoy walking up a hill with a wheelbarrow. But like, there's no real reason, like I can do it. So there's no real reason that I should be like setting up this tractor to get this stuff up the hill. Like we have water on, at, at, up on the vineyard. So like, I don't have to like move the water. So that's a big plus, but it's, it's, it's very easy to like take the easier way of doing those things. Um, and so like we do a lot of weed whacking in the vineyard instead of using um, a tractor. We have a walk behind BCS tiller um, to like flail up like the cuttings after pruning. Um, and so like at other wineries, I was using an amount of diesel in a few days and it's what I use in a full year here. Mm -hmm. um, and that's for the entire property, not just the vineyard mm -hmm. as well. So it's, we're doing things a harder way, um, but like it's, I feel good about it. Um, the things I spray, I feel good about because I'm putting them on a backpack sprayer and there is no way to not be covered in spray when you're backpack spraying. Like a little breeze and it's just gonna get all over you. I've tried the little paper suits that you see <laughs> the people on the tractors wearing, but I don't think they're quite made for someone over six feet tall because they made me try them at J. Christopher just because you know there's they have they're a bigger operation they're the concerns you know osha standards and silly things like that <laughs> um but like as soon as i sat on the tractor the paper things came up to my knee like like touch the steering wheel and the thing and so it was like i was wearing like a little jumper like a onesie jumper made out of paper and they kind of like okay you don't have to wear that that's super silly <laughs> um it was it, like it was nice there in that sense they had cab trackers with nice nice filters you know and air conditioning so i wasn't straight up dying <laughs> um but like and the, you know they're they fully organic too so it's not like they're spraying anything gnarly that you like necessarily needed like lots of protection from but you don't really don't want sulfur coating your entire body mm -hmm. um but there's a lot of things up there that I could spray to make my job easier. I could spray on um, conventional farming and have a interval window of up to 21 days. And so I'm really only having to do four sprays in a five sprays in a growing season. Um, I've already done five this season so far because it's an organic setup with hint, like hints of biodynamic. <laughs> um, and so like one of the things with my dad was he, he did not believe in certifications. He wasn't ever gonna pay somebody money to tell him he's farming okay. He was gonna farm the way he needed to, to get things done. Um, so if you have a really bad year like 2013 for, you know, like botrytis and powdery mildew, like we're not gonna go full organic in, in that circumstance that year. Next year, back to, you know, normal, fully organic. Like, but we're not gonna let our fruit rot on a vine to like hold on to like, we are organic. Mm -hmm. And then if you have that certification, you're losing money. 
Um, you're, you could lose your certification. And so he, he never really got into all that. Like his joke about salmon safe was like, if any salmon comes on this property, I'm eating it. It is not a salmon safe property. Like completely ignoring what salmon safe actually means, which we are, <laughs> but he wasn't ever gonna go pay money to get a little stamp on a bottle. Um, and so uh, like our farming has always fluctuated, um, but since my dad passed away, it's, it's gone and stayed fully organic. Um, I have the weeds to prove it. Like I, I'm up there with like a hoe to like get rid of the weeds as instead of like the very conventional, easy, like herbicide application that would make my life so much easier. Um, but like herbicide is scary. I don't like it. It's pretty terrible. Um, and so like when you can still you know be quantified as like organic and then still get a couple herbicide applications in a year and it's like. Still, I don't, I don't like that. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't think people are getting serious enough into like, and in looking into what they're spraying. They're making their lives easier. They're, when you, and I'm talking from a place of spending very little money on what I spray because of the size of my vineyard. I under, I fully understand when you're talking about hundreds of acres, that's a lot of money and a lot of risk mm -hmm. to spray organic or, you know, even more so like biodynamic. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I get that, like, I can sit on a high horse talking about it because um, it's far easier for me to do the, all those things. Like, I can hand hoe the sections of the vineyard that get overgrown with weeds because I know where those sections are. I know how much there is. But when you have hundreds of acres and you need... It's hard to send out, like, a, a crew of vineyard workers in the middle of summer and be like, I need you guys to hand hoe these blocks. And it's, like, 90 degrees and hand hoeing. Mm -hmm. um, there was this vineyard manager who, like was far more into like herbicides and his one of his lines was because I'm not willing to tell these guys to go do something that I'm not willing even he was an older guy so it's like I'm not going to go tell them to do something that I'm not willing to do myself um, and so that's you know like everyone's got their own thing but for us we're, we're getting deeper into strictly organic biodynamic practices um, but that being said, if I have work to do and it's like a root day and I'm not supposed to do it, like I'm still doing it because I need to get it done. Um, so that we've never fully fit into like one category of, we've been conventional, we've been organic, we have little bits of biodynamic, but we're not one, we're not certified in any. Um, and we don't really sell our grapes, so I'm not trying to like get certifications just to get a little higher price on my grapes. Um, the main thing is like, I know what, what I'm spraying because I'm the one doing it. Want to make sure I'm healthy. <laughs> um, and so that like this all ties into like the regenerative farming where it's like the pruning cuttings are, you know, helping getting in the soil, uh, like walking around the right time of year. It's like you can't help but walk on mushrooms. They're absolutely everywhere. And it's because we don't we don't till. So we've never broken up the connections in the soil. Um, and so like I like to believe we have incredibly healthy soil um, you know we're doing cover crops and like all those things you're supposed to do to have like healthy healthy soil healthy vines um, but we're also doing it all by hand um, and so like those handful of things are you know what kind of makes us like far different from most other mm -hmm. vineyards um, there's a lot of small vineyards like us that are like on the hobby side or they just sell all their grapes and they have the wide spacing for tractors to get through. 
Um, but like our, yeah, like four acres doesn't sound like a lot, but then it's like 10 to 12,000 vines within those four acres. And we can pull about 10 tons off the property on like a nicely cropped year. Like 2009 was probably like the nicest weather where we got like a heavy crop and we're able to keep it all year without having to drop any fruit or anything like that. As the vines have, have matured and as your practices have kind of honed, I'm curious, have you noticed a difference in quality of fruit or, or, in, the, or in the flavor profile of the fruit? There's, so I, when I became more involved, I started doing things slightly different than my dad, but like he was still there. He was, he's, you know, still the winemaker. So, um, but like some things he mentioned were like punch downs. I was doing more gentle and on a more regimented schedule. Whereas prior he was doing them as he had time, you know, like during harvest. Um, so there's been like small little changes that my dad mentioned have like, he mentioned ha that the changes that I was doing and the way I was doing things was slightly changing the wine, but he was okay with it and he liked the changes. Um, as the vines have gotten a little older, um, and I've read this about laurel wood soils, is you can um, get more of a, a rose, like a fresh rose smell. Um, and like our 2015, for example, like there's, there was a moment when it was in barrel and like, there's like a handful of times in my life where I've had like a full, like just you get snapped into a moment you had pri prior in your life. Um, and it just smelling this one barrel sample took me back to like this house that was right next to my grandpa's house. Um, and like no one really lived in the house. It was like a second, second house for the guy. And, but he had these, these roses in the garden. And like, as soon as I smelled this barrel sample, it like kind of snapped me back to being a little kid and smelling these roses. And that is, that is a, something that has come along a little bit more as the vines have gotten a little older. Whereas when they were younger, we were getting more heavy, dark fruits, mm -hmm. lots of heavy cherry. Um, now we get like some interesting like the rose and a little bit of like cherry cola as opposed to just dark cherry it's it's definitely getting more like earthy like things that i would say is like a traditional like burgundian pinot it's getting closer to that it's still very much oregon and it's very much different from burgundy but it's some of the characteristics are getting more earthy forest floor kind of things mm -hmm. are, are getting closer yeah mm -hmm. so i'll come back to to kind of the the aggressor uh, uh thing in a second i'm curious you, you mentioned other places you worked so outside of this tell me take me through kind of your progression through oregon wine and some of the some of the roles and places you've had and, and how that sort of contributed to what you're doing here so it's not like having been able to work here and always like fall back on this as a place like i haven't worked tremendous amount like I have some friends and it's like every couple of years they're getting a new job and so they have this like big resume you know harvest overseas and things like that um, for me it was all the way up until about 2015 I was here um, and then I went to Jay Christopher um, for quite a while um, and when I got there I worked under their vineyard manager at the time um, and then they let him go and I kind of took over that job. Um, but we got to work with uh, Jessica Cortell as like a vineyard consultant and she, providing the hand labor side of everything. Um, 
And so I was there for, yeah, close to four and a half years doing everything vineyard. Um, the first year got more exposure to their other vineyards that they farmed, like um, Medici, which is super interesting. Um, I would never want to own it. Trellis is falling apart, but like wonderful site, like really, really old vines. Um, and it's, they're, they're kind of along the lines of um, uh, Schaefer. Um, they don't get the same credit that a lot of other vineyards get for being early planters of Pinot in Oregon. And you have some really old Chardonnay, Pinot, Riesling being grown at, at Medici. Um, farming nightmare, but wonderful site. Um, and then they have another vineyard in the Dundee Hills, and I'm not sure if they're still farming it, but Baptista Marsh. I heard they're making their own wines from the site now, so I don't know if Jay Christopher still gets any of that, but those were the three vineyards um, that Jay Christopher had the farming contracts on. They buy fruit from a handful of other, other places, um, but Baptista allowed me to then um, be right next to the Red Barn, because that's a lot of times where I'd have to go unload the truck. Um, the truck at Jay Christopher was a two-wheel drive, so it's exactly what you want to tow a tractor around up steep gravel hills. Also what you want to tow lots of fruit on at harvest time is going down gravel hills, locking up all your tires and skidding. To, it's wonderful fun. Um, but it was got me into the Dundee Hills where growing up, it was always, always in the north part of the valley. It was like we're in this little bubble of um, Forest Grove kind of area. So like trips into like McVinville, Newburgh were like a treat. <laughs> like uh, we get to go to Davidson's and like, get some cool equipment and you know, things like that. Um, but then yeah, just at Jay Christopher for a while, um, always, always in Vineyard. Um, and then did a little bit of work for Stoller, very, very little. Um, did a little bit of work for a Vineyard Management Company um, and wasn't super excited, just like, I didn't like, I, I, I liked the work and I liked the job, but I just didn't like visiting six to ten vineyards per day. Like, the little things that I mentioned that I like about this place, like you mentioned, or I mentioned, you, you, you learn when the birds fly and use that as a clock. You learn when certain flowers are going to bloom and use that as a baseline for when you're going to have bud break. And, you don't get that when you're visiting, and they're, they're beautiful vineyards that I got to visit and work in, but I, there was no connection to them, other than it being a pretty place. Um, and so that was a bummer. Um, and at the same time, um, when I left Jay Christopher in like 2019, I had tore my ACL just prior to leaving there, and so then I got surgery and I found that sitting on a tractor for 10 hours a day was not something that I could comfortably do anymore. So just like not being super into, the, I was into the work, but not super into it. And then like hurting, my knee hurting every day, it was like pretty easy to be like, yeah, I'm gonna go work a harvest somewhere else and then just get back in with my family place. Um, so I worked a harvest um, at Edgefield um, just cause I wanted a larger winery experience. I have these, um, like, J. Christopher is 15,000 cases, and it sounds like a lot, but the facility size is fairly, the building is, is big, but the facility size is fairly small. Um, and it's still what I would consider a small winery. Um, I'm definitely a small winery. 
Um, so everything was still always on the smaller side of things. And like in, I remember it was like 27 varieties is what they work with for a harvest. And you know, it, it's definitely far different from what I'm doing here, where it's like almost every single grape gets inspected before it goes into a fermenter. And you know, on that large scale, you can't really do that. And so it was nice to get exposed to that style of, of winemaking. And, um, actually working as like part of a larger team during harvest was was fun and interesting and um, so I did that and made the bright decision um, right before COVID uh, struck to like work here full-time <laughs> like I'm gonna sell wine and and then and then COVID struck here so that, that made the selling wine thing slow down a little bit um, but uh, uh, after uh, Edgefield then went and did a Cooper Mountain harvest for the the smoke smoke year last year 2020 and that kind of brings brings it all up to current <laughs> I have some, we'll have some 2020 questions later that I'm very curious about sort of uh, some experiences there but but I'm curious uh, at your you're kind of all this time you're kind of honing your own vineyard philosophy because I'm coming from your dad so yeah. I'm coming from things you want to do I'm curious as you go out and work other places where your philosophy doesn't mean as much. Uh, I'm curious how you kind of balance the work you have to do with the work you want to do, and, and, and are there things you're, you're doing in your jobs that you just feel feel wrong about or, or, or wish, wish you weren't having to do? Uh, like on like the vineyard management side would be herbicide-related things, um, sprays that are like conventional, so it's still just like a pesticide, um, insecticide kind of thing, but far gnarlier than what I would really want. Um, like here, like if I have, I'm mixing a batch of like spray solution, if I have a particularly annoying chunk of like sulfur, I have no problem just sticking my hand in there, breaking it up. But I know what sulfur is, I know what it can do, and I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Whereas a lot of other stuff, it's like I would want the full like rubber gloves up to the elbow and the white suit and the glasses to make sure there's no splash coming up and all those important safety things I would want mm -hmm. in, in the other places. Mm -hmm. um, Again, I'm kind of off, got lost on the question. <laughs> oh, just sort of curious about balancing that. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. And then um, being in those other places, I've always had this to come back to. Um, so even in the years where I wasn't fully involved, it was still like, oh, bottling, come back and help. Oh, behind in pruning, come back and help. So there's always been that, that pressure valve, that release of being able to come here and do what I want. And without really having a boss, you know, it's you get to set your own hours and all that comfort that comes from that. Um, but as far as like working in the other places where it's like I don't have, I don't match up in philosophies as much would be, just continued learning, because without having like the, the school education for winemaking, there is a lot that I missed out on. There's a lot of knowledge that I, I just don't have, um, and it. but I'm slowly getting it, as opposed to like a four-year course where it's all jammed into you, like I'm still slowly learning constantly all the time. And so working in like the larger winery was like, that is something I, I want to do. It was something my dad said. He wanted us to actually at some point to get down to like California and work in like a wine farm. Mm -hmm. Like he said, we should get to like New Zealand or Australia and work in a tremendously large place just for the experience. Like it's not what we're doing here and there's probably not a lot that you could bring from that back here, but it's an experience that he thought everyone should have. Um, 
That being said, having a daughter can't really just like fly across the world for a couple months and be gone. Um, so like the second best is, is would be working for a, a larger sized Oregon winery. Mm -hmm. um, and Edgefield was definitely interesting. I, I learned a lot there. It's like the property is like insane. The way they have to do some things is kind of insane just based on the fact that Edgefield is producing um, they've got the distillery there, they've got the brewery there, they've got the winery there, and the winery makes all the cider. And they all use the same drain system and crush pad area. So like during the middle of harvest, you've got like all these hoses going from all these tanks and all these transfers happening. And then you've got these guys from the distillery dumping like pear mash down a drain and it smells like hot baby food during the middle of harvest. And you're just like, this is not what I want to do right now. But it's like, they that's, I mean, they can't go anywhere else. It's, it's Edgefield, it's a historical building. They can't change anything about it. Um, so that's just, they're doing what they have to do to make wine there. Um, but definitely learned a lot. And then going from, you know, somewhere like that where you have like a day and a night shift it's, it's almost there's like a probably like a five hour period without people there but that was it um, and because they work with so many varieties it takes so long you have your first ripening and then your very very last you know something like Riesling coming in in October like mid to late October um, but it was interesting to go somewhere like there where it's like if you finish a job early and you go okay what do you want me to do and they don't have anything for you to do there's like oh go help so and so do this and you go to so and so and they don't need help but you just kind of stand there and watch them um, and then going somewhere where like uh, Cooper Mountain um, where I remember uh, I, like it was the first tank transfer they were going to have me do and one of the other interns was just not super busy, not really doing anything. So I just asked her if she could go to the tank and let me know with the flashlight when the water gets close and I'll cut the pump. And Jill heard me and he's like, no, 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 you're doing it by yourself. And I kind of was just like, oh, oh shit, I gotta do this by myself. Okay, I've, you know, I've always had my dad, I've always had my brother, I've even like my daughter available just to be like, hold a flashlight at a tube and be like, yep, that's water now. And it's not a hard job, but when you're, the lines are stretched across the winery and the remote from the pump only goes so far, like there's this portion where you're running to make sure it's not, you're not pumping water into the tank. But he wanted us to learn how to do it by ourselves because there's gonna come a point in harvest where there won't be a convenient person there to help you and you can't just like hold up everything by waiting mm -hmm. for someone to help you mm -hmm. um, so you've got to learn how to do it yourself um, so like there it, it's very interesting having that like different scale of like here everything is small so it, it's not so stressful I can get to one side of my winery in a couple steps um, whereas at Cooper Mountain it was a couple sprints you know like to get to the other side to where the tank was and at Edgefield you're just kind of like standing there waiting watching someone operate a pump and so it's a good range of, of all of it. <laughs> so I want to come back to your, your you mentioned like your, your dad's dream of, of what this place was going to be the forested area small family winery so as that started to take shape what was what was sort of the vision for what this would become and at what point what what part did you play in that vision? I guess in, in the original idea. What what were you going? What was your thought? Originally, as like in '98, I was eight and nine years old. So I had no clue what my dad did for a living was semi-unique to most people. <laughs> like 
I kind of grew up thinking everyone's dad did something similar and like everyone's dad had these little pet experiments of wine going in their garage or in their wine cellar. I thought everyone had a wine cellar. Like we have a part of our underneath this house, there is a underground wine cellar that we have that can fit a handful, like a couple hundred cases. And it's, God, I thought everyone had one of those. It wasn't kind of until high school that I, I learned it was a little more unique. Like there's still a couple hundred, like hundreds of wineries, but it's still fairly unique to have, you know, like I haven't met anyone else who has like a dad or mom as a winemaker. Um, uh, but it, I don't, as a kid, it was nothing special. It was just kind of what my dad did. It was here. If middle of summer when your dad is the only one, like, because we've always, we've owned, we've, there's a small handful of times where we've had to hire labor for things like pruning where we just weren't going to finish in time. Everything has, for the vast majority, been family members or one of my, I was able to get my best friend a job here for a while when he, when he got out of school. Uh, my cousin has worked here for a while, like 2009. Like, and we still refer to it as grape wars because you have your brother and your cousin and a heavy crop. So there's nothing wrong with snipping off a cluster and being like, hey, Sam, and just throwing a cluster at your brother. And so I still have these white t-shirts with like these weird triangle um, like stains on them. And it's because a cluster just like smashing into them. Um, <laughs> vineyard paintball. Yeah, oh yeah, it, that was a fun year. And so like, it's, it's like 2009 was Vineyard Wars. Like that was Grape Wars. That was how it's referred to between the three of us. Um, but it's, it's always been just family members, close friends who have been able to work here. Um, it's like it's, but like, like I said, as a kid, it was, I didn't really know what he was doing, was special, was anything unique. Um, but as, as it's kind of, as I got involved working in the vineyard and the winery as I got a little older, um, and just having actual like becoming an adult and having co full adult conversations with your father. Um, like the plan in his mind was always, cause up there, the vineyard's on a hillside. He's always wanted to do it like a gravity flow winery um, with a crush pad at the top. So the grapes never even actually leave the vineyard. They're, they're technically crushed in the vineyard, um, which is, always something that we've wanted to do but like again tremendous amounts of money involved in digging out a hillside and putting in a, a vineyard um, but that that was the plan um, and it's still kind of something that I hold to as like the the end goal when I can kind of finally like sit there a little relaxed and be like okay it's it's done is when we have that large larger facility on the property um, and I still want it in the, in the hill. Um, my dad just hyped us up on having wine caves. And so I'm, and then working at Jay Christopher, it's, it's hard to get wine caves out of your head as a possibility. And it's def, definitely want some wine caves. <laughs> um, but like, uh, like I said, my dad didn't want it to be a tourist vineyard. He made it very clear to people. We've only really ever opened the property up, um, Memorial Day, Labor Day, Thanksgiving kind of um, tasting holidays. Um, we're always like, oh, if someone reaches out, um, like Facebook or something like that, and so I'd really love to come out for a tasting. It's we're, we're glad to do it, but we don't really bring people out a whole lot. Whereas, you know, like a winery in town is like the whole goal is like bring people in, bring people in, get them exposed to the wine, let them taste it. 
um, have this like very, very nice tasting room that you spent millions of dollars on. Um, but that's not what we're doing here. Um, and I think it's like the movie Bottle Shock. And it's like the scene where um, Alan Rickman is like tasting with these like hillbilly farmer guys. And the guy like scoots him this little bowl of salsa that he made and he wants him to like eat a chip with this homemade, like that's what we're doing here, which is like Napa in the 70s is like what we're doing here in 2021. Um, like uh, when my, I have, I have a younger brother and then an, another brother and a, a younger sister. Um, and so like my younger sister used to make hummus for tasting weekends and we used to make gazpacho and like serve it to like, it wasn't like cheese and crackers. It was like what we were going to eat for lunch ourselves was like what we had for, for tasting. So it's, it's, it's far different than what a lot of people are out there doing. Um, and so like the big tasting room was never really a plan. Like in my head, I kind of kick around and me and my brother talk about ideas of doing like some kind of cool modern looking like shipping container building and making that a tasting room, but still not like a massive thing that you can fit like 50 people in. Like we like the idea of just a few people. Um, the more realistic idea for us, at least in like the future is um, the plan is to build these like kind of tasting pods or little private areas. So like one would be up in the vineyard on the hillside. Um, and kind of like down the road is Elk Cove's Five Mountain Vineyard. It's because you have a view of all five mountains. And same from at the top of the vineyard. You can look at Mount St. Helens and you go all the way, Adams, Jefferson, Hood. And you, you see everything Rainier. Um, and so it's like something up there like flat platform, kind of a deck, so like only really nice weather days would it be something someone would be interested in. Um, but doing a, something similar like down in the forest below us where it's, you're completely isolated from all the other sounds going around and you're just by yourself in the forest. And so my idea would be like, if someone wants to talk to me, like I'd hang out and pour the wines, but like also just be like, okay, I'm gone. Like, enjoy yourself. Like this should be relaxing for you. You shouldn't, like if you want me to talk and answer questions, like I'd, I'd love to, I enjoy doing that, but you're not really gonna enjoy the wine in the same way as if you're sitting in a nice chair with some, like the people you enjoy and you're just listening to birds go off and you're sipping and smelling wine. Like that's far more relaxing to me than standing up like at a bar front, um, just getting like a generic, like regurgitated description like, because everyone is taste wine subjectively. So these little tasting room descriptions I've always found silly. I don't like writing descriptions. Uh, a lot of wines, I think, can honestly be described in Jolly Rancher flavors. Like, it's far simpler than a lot of people make it. Like, I don't know what quince paste is. I don't know. I've never had it. I don't know what a quince is. No idea. Um, so I don't have these things in, like, tasting descriptors because it's, I think they're silly. I don't, a lot of these things, like, I don't know the difference between a lemon and a Meyer lemon, like, but like Meyer lemon gets thrown in tasting notes all the time. It's like, I'd prefer just a Jolly Rancher color. You don't even have to tell me the name, just show me the color and I'll know what, uh, what we're talking about. But like what we have in our like vision is the property is far different than what a lot of wineries and facilities are doing and what they, they have as their goals. Mm -hmm. It's much smaller, much more intimate. And I've, I've seen a lot of wineries with COVID, they kind of did these like kind of nice pop-up like canvas tents. Mm -hmm. And like, so they're doing like, it's kind of along those lines. Cool. 
Oh, uh, yeah, Lingua Franca has like a tent like that, I think. Mm -hmm. So it's, something like that is, is far more interesting to us than, you know, what I still view as like a gorgeous, beautiful building, but it's like, that's not our tasting room. Mm -hmm. So how have you how have you sold wine without that as kind of the baseline for selling? How do people know about you and how do you get wine out the door? Uh, we went through a handful of like sales people distributors over the years starting in like 2006. Um, for a while in Forest Grove there was a place called 1910 Maine um, that was a restaurant and then they also rented out the space next to them and it was for homeless winemakers just people without their own facilities uh like tasting room facilities and uh like i remember we shared like there was i think six of us or so were in there um like blizzard wines was one of them and they now have their own tasting room and stuff uh pretty pretty nearby um but that was a, that was a lot of good exposure for us and my dad was the main thing. So he liked telling stories. Sometimes, whether they were true or not, didn't, didn't matter to him. If the person seemed to enjoy the story, he could alter it to make it more enjoyable for him. Might not have a whole lot of, like, a little bit of truth to it. Um, but, like, just the winemaker being the one talking to people that has been the big thing mm -hmm. people very much seem to respond and enjoy having the winemaker and then for us specifically you know we're not snooty rich people like it's a we're a little more approachable than and there's nothing wrong with snooty rich people but like i maybe one day would like to be a snooty rich person but like for us like that's not how we've done things and so we're more approachable and uh you know like if the situation ever showed itself like we could just sit there and drink a beer with the person that we're talking to instead of like talking about this wine that we made and trying to get money out of them it's just like more about having an enjoyable conversation and time with someone um mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm gonna put I'm put on your future goals note here that you want to be a snooty rich person yeah. someday. That's, oh yeah, one day. It's very it's very exciting. One day. <laughs> so, uh, tell me about the, the the place the business was. Uh, you mentioned you 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 lost, you lost your dad a few years ago. Tell me tell me about where the business was when that happened and and what you felt at that point your role needed to be and how how things changed for you at that point. So at the time my dad passed away, my brother was already living on the property and I was at J. Christopher, so the vast majority of my time was not spent here. It was at, at a job that paid me very well. And so my brother was doing the vast majority of the vineyard work um, and then, and then the, the winery side of stuff. Um, and then prior to my dad passing away, he had already like slowly stepped back and I mean, he's our dad and he's, we live in the same house with him, so, but like more of a consultant where it's like, hey dad, this is where these numbers are at. This is, this is what I think I should do next. And, you know, he'd, he'd either be like, yeah, yeah, cool. Or just be like, I don't know, maybe, maybe think about that a little harder. Like, might be messing up. Um, and again, I'm sorry, I'm spaced on the actual first question. <laughs> uh, just, just like kind of what, what, what happened when your dad passed away, what, what sort of your role was in, in your kind of plan. Okay, so yeah, yeah, my brother being the one living here, working here, um, he took over more of that main role. Um, his wife at the time, I don't know if he was married, girlfriend at the time, but his then wife and they're now divorced. Um, but the two of them kind of were just kind of 
they were going to do Gresser. Like, it was going to be their thing, um, which I was okay with. Like, the, again, the same way it always was with my dad when help was needed. Like, I was available. Um, I did spend time out here with things like bottling, but it was going to be their kind of path forward. Um, and they made the decision to no longer use our distributor sales group, and they were going to kind of change things into like a farmer's market as a way to sell wine. And after seeing, like, I never really agreed with that, and me and my brother's ex-wife never really agreed with each other, and it was very easy for me to just be like, um, I'm gonna go do my thing over at J. Christopher. I like my job, I get off on time, get to take my daughter to soccer practice, all enjoyable things. I'm gonna, I'm cool, you guys, you guys do Gresser. Um, as opposed to just, like, being angry at my brother all the time because I don't agree with the things they're doing. Um, and then that unfortunately, like, is a year prior to COVID was they made that decision. And then you get to COVID and, oh yeah, no more farmer's markets. Uh, you don't have the same ability to sell wine that you do or did. Um, but in that sense, we're very, very lucky in the sense that property has been paid off for years. I don't pay rent to anyone to make wine here. Like it's our own house. The vineyard pays for itself by you know what what we can sell like so there is no main urgency like oh I have to make this much money or I'm not gonna have a space to make wine anymore um, like I've got the stock of like empty glass that I can rely on so like if I ever just like oh no I can't afford glass right now it's like okay I got like a thousand cases in that room I'm cool um, <laughs> But like it did lead us up in to like I mean, I would prefer to have stuck with the sales the sales people and like have that way of selling wine. That way I can actually stay in the vineyard and, and not really have to go and, and make sales calls myself. Um, and so just because we don't have that pressure that a lot of places have to make money in that sense, it was an easy decision just to like relax and be mellow through this focus on vineyard health focus on all that work because this year it is just me so it is a tremendous amount of work oh bumblebee <laughs> um it was yeah it was an easy decision to just be like i'm you know i'm not gonna go full force trying to be like expand the business get bigger it's it's you know like sometimes in the vineyard you see a vine and it's not the healthiest vine and it's easy to decide with that vine to just not ask so much of it that year and just give it a growth year. Like, you know, it's like a rebuilding year for a sports team. Like, yay, we're not winning the championship this year. Don't really even expect the playoffs. It's a rebuilding year. And it's kind of, that's where we're at. It's, I'm put really no pressure on myself. Um, like I, I, I pay my bills, so I'm happy. Um, you know, I'm not trying to buy a second car. I'm not trying to buy a vacation home. Like it's, it's super, Super simple, super easy to just, for me to make the decision to relax, focus on the vineyard health, and kind of just move forward from there. And then in the future, it will be looking for a distributor to, and one thing my dad never really did was get into different states. We were always really um, mostly North Valley, which where our sales were, because a lot of times he was the one going in to like actually, we like to do the tastings ourselves instead of hiring just a random person to go pour at a grocery store, it was my dad there. And that's where a lot of people were like, holy crap, the winemaker's in this grocery store pouring for me. Um, 
And so we have a good handful of people who like want our wines and they like what we're doing. They've come out on those rare occasions that we're open. They've actually seen it and agreed with it as opposed to seeing it and been like, oh, you're not a tourist place. Like, you know, where's your visitor center? Like, you know, like love what Stoller is doing, but we don't have an interactive visitor center, you know, as part of like our setup. Um, and so getting back into like as COVID kind of relaxes and you can actually go into places and make that face-to-face -face conversation with the wine buyers mm -hmm. um that's what we'll be doing whereas like now it's I you know I see people sending in little sample bottles and it's like they won't know anything about me based off the sample bottle um, if we weren't big into, we were never huge into like, you know, the small wine shops in Portland, which, you know, like on social media are like the driving things about cool wines these days. And it's, um, it's all stuff that we're going to get back into and move forward. But it was an easy decision to just be like, yeah, no pressure this year. <laughs> We've talked a lot about your work in the vineyard here and elsewhere. I'm, I'm curious about the other, the other part of things in, in the winemaking. So, uh, tell me about the wines you make here uh, and about uh, what you sort of hope for them to be. What do you, what do you hope someone gets out of a bottle of your wine? Um, ooh. So like the, one of the main things that, and it's, it's something that I'm 100% in keeping and it it's, seems fairly uncommon, but it's my, my dad was not super happy with the $90 bottle of rosé that was produced off a piece of land he used to own wine should not be that expensive. There are not a lot of reasons why wine should be $100 a bottle. Our wines, the most we've ever charged is $32 for a bottle of wine, and that was a sparkling wine. So there was actually like hand labor put into justifying a slightly higher price for us. Most of our wines are around $20 to $25 because that is accessible to a lot of people. I myself don't even buy $100 bottles of wine I think the most I've ever spent is like 70. So like, I would feel silly pricing bottles really high. And like my dad never, he wanted our wines to be accessible. Um, they shouldn't be expensive. And that's something we can keep doing. Um, and again, sorry, I got sidetracked and forgot your main question. Uh, just about the wine you make. Wine, okay, so yeah, wine, so like, the th that, like that was the, yeah, the first thing someone should expect is like our wines aren't crazy expensive, they're accessible. Um, for us, we're at 900 feet elevation, so a lot of years we have a good amount of acidity in our wines. Um, a lot of times, like it, that will lend itself to a, like a lighter style. Um, and so with my dad and his like extraction techniques, um, he was kind of known for a heavier style. That's something I've slightly changed is the wines are lighter now. Um, Cause that is just kind of where I like them. I pick earlier than my dad. My dad was picking 23 bricks, which is good and everything. But for us, we're actually the ones picking. So we don't pick it all in one day. So it doesn't all come in at 23 bricks. It comes in 24, 25, and those all go together. And so that does make like a kind of uni unique little single vineyard cuvee where it's multiple different, like, I mean, it's, it's not a big vineyard, so it's not a whole lot of different slope mm -hmm. 
like variation, but we have a middle, a top, and a bottom section. And there are, for us, there are small little things we can pick up on and differences in those sections. Um, and then you, by pick, picking like that, the way we do it, like a slower pick. So like if I'm picking at slightly lower bricks, 22 to 24, it's still getting that same kind of good variation of a little bit of each, like not like underripe, but not crazy ripe yet. And then not crazy ripe where it's like, oh, maybe we should just make some port out of that. Um, but where it's all kind of blended together and it, it works for us. And I think that's unique for our style where it's a lot of people at Harvest, the owners, the winemakers, like the family aren't the ones out in the vineyard actually picking like they're out taking pictures of the pickers <laughs> um, but they're not like the ones picking themselves like they're getting that nice instagram photo and so like that is something very unique to us i think is like it changes the way our wines taste compared to others mm -hmm. um and from the property just it being all pinot we're like limited in that um but from that i can make like a pet nat, rosé, sparkling wine, table wine, and port. I can make five wines from the same vineyard for in the same vintage. Mm. Um, so we have like that like, kind of like winemaking knowledge. We can do all those different things. Um, sparkling wine was something my dad was always really into. Um, and it was one of the things that kind of got Laurel Ridge's name raised a little bit in the 90s was the sparkling wines my dad was making. Um, and like I've actually run into people who are like a little older, like so at like one of the Jay Christopher Christmas parties, we're talking to like one of the Lozen brothers, uh, people who works in like the business side of everything, and I you know like I don't normally talk to them a whole lot, but like at this dinner we were seated next to each other, and so we're chatting and you know kind of just giving them the same kind of rundown, like a little less in depth than what I've <laughs> given you, but like the same little rundown of like background and. Then, you know, he heard my dad was the winemaker at Laurel Ridge and then he started asking about the sparkling wines and he was aware of them. And it's like, so there's been situations like that where people who have been around long enough were like, oh yeah, your dad, he made the, the sparkling wines. And so that's something we've always done. We've always made sparkling wine here um, just for home stash, mm -hmm. just that's what we like to drink. So we've always made it. Um, but we release, we've only released two vintages, uh, 11 and 13 of sparkling wine. Um, so it, for us, it's very much a special thing that the, the whole growing season has to call for it it's we're you know a lot of wineries like your distributors want the same thing the next year so you have to make sparkling wine even if the fruit is blown out and it's a really warm year and it doesn't necessarily call for it mm -hmm. and picking early is, isn't going to give you a whole lot of flavor characteristics you're just going to have like acid juice um, and for us it's, it's a very much like a special, special thing to release it. Um, and the same thing with the, with the red wines, with our Pinot. There's been those same years that are excellent for sparkling wine are not so excellent for table wine at 900 feet. Um, and so there's, again, the same two years, 11 and 13, we've done, um, we've purchased uh, Syrah. As, as something to blend, um, but we do it in higher than that 10% threshold you're allowed to play around with and like closer to like 25%, so it's labeled as a red blend. Mm -hmm. um, so we have two bottlings of red blends. Um, and it's like the, the flavor from the Pinot was still there, but like the color was always like very, very light. And my dad didn't like the really, really light colored Pinots. 
Uh, like, because you have people making rosés that are rosé and a light-colored pinot, and you're like, okay, what is it? It's, it's the same thing. Um, like, well, for us at like 900 feet. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that did take a little bit of time to learn was like, we kind of do have to do what the vintage allows us to do. You can't always make sparkling wine. You can't always make table wine the way you'd want. You kind of got to do what you're allowed to with mm -hmm. the weather. Mm -hmm. um, like 2010 was not a fun vintage for us here uh, with like Botrytis, like it and it, it's interesting there's like all these younger and I say younger myself only being like 32 but like as far as like how many years they have in the industry and how old their brand is younger um, like I'm talking like 2014 on like we haven't had a wet 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 vintage the way we used to and there's gonna be a lot of wine that gets made that first time it happens and people are gonna like you know especially the the ones who have delved into like the low to no sulfur realm of winemaking which is where we're at we have wines that are no sulfur i don't ever tell people that because i'm if someone asks i'll tell them but it's not like a marketing thing it's same with the vineyard stuff it's like if i'm drinking it i want it, like i know what's in it and some some years is going to call for higher concentrations of sulfur in our wines just based on the fruit that we brought in but then there's years we can get away with like little to none um and we do um but yeah like there's the same thing with like what makes our vineyard unique is kind of what makes our wine unique and it's it's yeah it's it's a constant constant playing around and, and learning more because i didn't go to school so it's a constant constant learning always 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 So you've talked a little bit about 2020 already and about kind of the just sort of like the, the pullback and let it let it happen. I'm, I'm curious as as COVID hit, uh, the kind of initial reaction and the initial kind of how did it how did it alter what you were doing, if at all, in, in sort of the wine and vine world? And and how long did it take you to kind of figure out what your plan was going to be for 2020? I made the decision to stop working other places in January and go all in on Gresser. So like right when the first whispers of people being sick in other countries were starting to hit the news and it was like an easy thing to ignore because it's like, hey, it's not here. People get sick. It's a thing that happens. Um, to then quickly being like, oh shit, this isn't good. How am I gonna get money? Like, so we were able to get some like bulk wine shipments out once I kind of was slowly realizing like, oh, I'm not gonna go be able to hand sell. Um, and that, that was for us, you know, like sticking to like kind of how my dad did it, that was a key thing. It's like being the one seen and being the one talking to is, is key for us selling our wine. Mm -hmm. um, and without the ability to do that, restaurants completely shut down, like grocery stores not really gonna, well, they've slowly been changing the way they do things anyways. Like you don't even get a pour for Fred Meyer's associates anymore um, and things like that. But like wasn't going to be able to even, it wasn't even a possibility. Mm -hmm. um, so I was able to get like some bulk wine shipments out and be like, okay, cool. We got something, we got some money. Like I said, we don't have like the rent payments that like certain wineries do and things like that. So the pressure wasn't there. Um, and it, yeah, it was easy decision to like and then the smoke too that just like that that, that just drove it all home where it's like yeah i'm just gonna let everything unfold the way it's going to i can't alter this situation much 
if a magic way to make a bunch of wine or make a bunch of money from my wine shows itself, I'm definitely going to go for it. But uh, it's, and it's a situation kind of, you know, with the smoke and then people making less wine, there was a, like a bubble in the bulk wine market and the, for shiners and things like that, where people were all of a sudden like, oh, I'm not making wine this year. I, I want to continue some production. I need a bottled wine that I can throw my label on. And mm -hmm. so things like that have, have shown themselves and, but as far as like just getting in the local market, it's been little to non-existent with COVID kind of mm -hmm. stuff. And it's slowly changing as people become vaccinated and Portland restaurants get shut down, open up, shut down, open up. So it's, we're still in like that holding waiting period where it's like, okay, let's see what's going on. <laughs> Again, I'm not stressing about it. Like it's giving me lots of free time. <laughs> so I, I like that aspect of it. Lots of time for the vineyard and, get to go and help out other wineries and stuff too. Like I was at Ars Tour going to Cooper Mountain next week to help them. And so it's like, get to do little things like that that I would have never had a lot of time for. And that, that kind of fits in with like the continued learning, like like working at other places and seeing how they do things. Mm -hmm. like, at, like at Ars Stewart the other day, I saw the way they hang hoses inside the winery when they're not used is they have like a, it seems like a custom setup where there's like a clamp and you clamp the hose into it and then you pull the clamp all the way up. It's like where most, most people drape their hoses over things and they over time get bends and get little stress fractures and things like that. And it's like, okay, so I've never seen anyone put, ho and like that's such a small weird thing, but like I've never seen anyone put hoses like that. Like I, I wanna do that, that's awesome. Like I don't have a tall enough roof to do it, but I would love to do that, that's so cool. <laughs> and like that's, you know, seeing little things, getting out and talking to people, meeting other people in the industry, it's like, so what happened to my dad is he just, my, my dad didn't like people, so it was very easy for him to do it, but like just like stay here on your little like patch of paradise and not worry about what other people are doing. Um, and so that's like led to like the brands not like crazy well known and things like that. And it's because my dad didn't really care. <laughs> like, so it's just like, <laughs> in that sense, we're keeping, you know, like that the same, but it's been, it's been nice to have that extra time to do things that in other years I wouldn't have. Mm -hmm. Um, like my dad had to miss a lot of soccer games of mine growing up because soccer is harvest season. Whereas like I've gotten, I've missed very, very few of my daughter's soccer games and she plays club soccer. So she's playing year round and it's like, I still get to go like this, but COVID's been awesome for that. Like I've gotten to go to a lot of soccer games this year. Um, but yeah, it's, we're just very lucky in that sense where there's not the huge pressure. Um, like I, you know, like I've seen people going out on sales trips and stuff to other states and it's like I would not, I'm not comfortable hopping in a plane yet and I'm, and I'm vaccinated, but like I don't want to go in an airport, get in an airplane. Like most of my time is spent outside, like I don't do a whole lot of crowded like spaces, so it's like I'm in no rush to like have to go sit on an air, airplane and go to a different state and different city and deal with all that that goes on with sales trips it's very easy to just stay here and, and do our thing <laughs> you brought up the, the smoke and the fires from last harvest uh how did that affect the vineyard here and how did that affect your work what, what what and what was the decision you made did you did you did you try to pick did you let it go we did not pick anything um so we did everything you know all the work that leads up to that um but again, like the like the less pressure that we have, it was a decision where like that was a factor for us to being like, we just won't. Whereas you know we'll we'll still do it and we might have to dump it. 
or something like that. Um, and my brother was doing harvest at Torrey Moore. I was at Cooper Mountain. So like everything here would have been like evenings and it just, and like we kind of found ourselves in between two of the fires at Hag Lake and then the Shehalem complex where just kind of like, it all kind of just hung out right around here. And it, for us, it was an easy decision. Just be like, okay, no. It's not this year. Mm -hmm. uh, we made some small amounts of stuff for ourselves, just we always do, so we continue to do that. And there's, once you start looking for smoke taint, you're, you're gonna find it, but, so I feel like there's a small amount, and so like I, I probably could have made the wines, maybe, I'm not sure. Like, it's all very new for everybody, so it's, it's, I'm still not entirely sure on how they would have turned out. And so that's what's kind of nice about having worked at Cooper Mountain. Um, and Gilles is just super knowledgeable. He's got like a heavy background in science. So he has a far better understanding of what's actually happening to the grape when it is getting permeated with the smoke taint and far better understanding of how to move forward if you do, what to do, what not to do. And it was so it was very nice to be able to work for him. Mm -hmm. um, because I saw a lot of people treating their Pinot as they always would have. So just like really hard press cycles the way they always would, extracting the same amount of juice as they always would because they have these quotas to hit. You have to have so much wine to like get to your markets so everyone's happy. Um, where I was at Cooper Mountain, there was a much more like relaxed kind of, we're going to take what we can get. So like the press cycle was like the presses were barely even on it was mostly to drain the free run out and, and keep that and um, they're gonna be uh, uh, Gilles is like super open whereas like a lot of people are doing like kind of secret processes to their wines and they don't they don't want to tell anyone about it and it's always kind of funny how people love to talk about how open the wine industry is but it like smoke taint year comes and doors are slammed shut and closed and um, but Gilles is super open, so he's, he's, you know, open about trying reverse osmosis on the wines and just, you know, he was very open and sharing about what he did while we were doing stuff. He wouldn't just be like, go do this to the wine. He'd explain why you're doing this to mm -hmm. the wine. Mm -hmm. You know, like if I saw some things other winemakers were doing, I could ask him questions like, why aren't you? What is your opinion on that? And he'd, he'd have answers for his, why he thought that was not a valid, you know, it wasn't going to do anything to save the wine. Um, it's just another additive for additive sake, make the person feel a little better pretty much. Um, and so I think I could have worked a lot of places and not had access to someone who was so knowledgeable and I wouldn't have walked away with as much that I kind of have now like, oh, I know what to do now a little bit. Um, whereas, like I mentioned before, there's going to be these vintages where these winemakers who have never had just torrential downpours for September and October and then had to make a picking decision when every single day is rain. It's the same with smoke taint. It's like, it was all brand new. Like mm -hmm. this is, so I now have a little bit of, you know, kind of like bag of tricks as to like how to, what to do, what not to do. Um, so hopefully it doesn't happen again, but there's, it's scary. There's no reason we won't have another smoke here. I mean, the coast range is right over there. There's no reason that doesn't burn. Um, driving, if you drive past Jay Christopher and go up um, over like 219 to get into like Newburgh, Hillsborough area, you can see the burn zone. Like there's no reason that forest burned and the one behind me doesn't. 
Um, so it, it, it's probably something we're going to have to, at the very least, have like on our radar and you know as much as people can like you know there's like little seminars winemaker groups get together and people talk and so be involved in those and just ask as many questions as you can and it's all new to everyone so unless you came from australia or, or california like it's new like we don't this for oregon winemakers it's it's brand new stuff or like willamette valley southern oregon's probably got a little more experience with it than willamette valley but that was all very new for me last year <laughs> all right um so I'm, I'm curious, you, you, you grew up in the industry. Uh, tell me about the biggest changes in Oregon wine that you've seen. What, what's, what's most different to you about the industry now versus sort of when you were first aware of it? Um, and what do you see, uh, what do you see it looking like now comparatively? As a little kid, you know, you're not paying a whole lot of attention to it. and. But there are some, and it's like I didn't know this as a kid, like what I like who this guy was and what he like. But uh, when my dad was a winemaker at another facility, they had a custom crush client um, that they'd make wine for, and there's like me and my brother were in the back seat of my dad's car, and this guy comes up and he starts yelling at my dad, and it's like looks like it's close to like a verbal, like a physical altercation and they're yelling and the guy, the guy calms down. And so like, that's all I kind of have is the memory. And like my dad, I don't remember what my dad said after, like nothing really came of it. But like, as I was older, my dad told me about this guy and he was this guy making custom crushing at their facility, had no permits, had nothing, not a single piece of paper to do what he was doing and he was serving the wines. The way my dad put it, it was like kind of like a, a boat that was kind of like a barge, but it had like a building to it, like a houseboat. It kind of moved around a little more freely than a houseboat. But it was like this guy was putting on like plays. And so like you weren't paying for the wine. The wine was like free once you were like on this, like this boat thing. But it was like 100% illegal, like more illegal than 100% if you could be. And like, that's what the guy was doing. And like, eventually he got shut down, but like that used to happen. Like that used to be a thing. Like there used to be illegal houseboats, like operating as like a tasting room winery, like getting past it by charging you for admittance to the play. Like, oh, your ticket to the play is 10 bucks. Oh, here's some free wine while you're at it. Uh, <laughs> And like that used to happen, like that was a thing. And like the, the reason for the fight was because like it became known the guy had like no paperwork, nothing, and like they couldn't release the wine out back to him after becoming aware of it. Or, and you know, at some point he might've had permits to start it or, or whatever, but like the way it ended, he, he like, he was mad at my dad for saying he couldn't, you know, come up and pick up a pallet of wine and take it with him. Mm -hmm. And so those things used to happen. Um, <laughs> I feel like they totally could still, and I don't like, like there's speakeasies in Portland and stuff. Um, the one Dean scene, like that one closed down, but like that that's the thing that was still going in Portland, you know, up to like last 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, so like something could happen like that, but I feel like it's far, far less likely. Mm -hmm. Now you have like, you know, go to Dundee Hills and you have like glass walls on tasting rooms that are like 50 feet tall to the ceiling. And it's, that's lovely, that's awesome. But that's, like, that's not how it was in the 90s. Um, like, we used to get pulled around to all these tasting rooms as a kid with, uh, when my dad would go and 
tasting rooms were like little side buildings attached to the main building. They all kind of looked the same. They all kind of had like crappy wood paneling. Like oyster crackers was like the go-to like tasting room food. Like now you have, I mean like the there's a lady who's on Top Chef and she works at Stoller, not Stoller. Um, Soder. Soder, yeah. And it's like, that was not happening in the 90s. Not, not one little bit. Um, like there's, there are differences, you know. A lot of it is still, still fairly similar. Like you still get a run into like the same, like in their old people now, but you know, they were people that my dad worked with and you still get a run into them and like hear their stories. And that really shows how, how different things are. Um, like I kind of put like the, the from the movie Bottle Shock, like that's kind of closer to where we're at. Like, like Alan Rickman eating salsa during a tasting that was homemade. Like we're we're that's us, but the valley as a whole is getting much bigger. Um, I mean, you have like NBA players making wine, which is awesome, wonderful. I love to see that and like what that can bring to the valley and that kind of exposure and. But like, I mean, I, I, I don't see like Arvidas Sabonis, like a Blazers from the 90s, Damon Stoudemire, like operating wineries, like the jail Blazers, like they were into smoking weed and getting caught smoking weed. Not, to my, to my knowledge, not so much like local wine and things like that. But now that's, that's the thing. And it's, so it's definitely bigger, definitely flashier. Um, and winery owners drive yellow Hummers now, where it wasn't a thing prior. <laughs> um, I think the common thing was a, a lot of like Volkswagen Bugs when I was a kid was was fairly common still. And um, you could do a lot more, like my dad could do when he was like the winemaker and like as a full-grown adult in the '90s, you could get away with a lot more. Like those stories, like my dad told me, like a guy, uh, and I just, in case anyone gets not happy with the story, like I won't say the name, but one of the places my dad worked at, uh, like one of the, the common tricks for new guys is, a new guy was to, like when he used a porta potty to go get the forklift and lift him up in the air on it. And it's like, if anyone told that to any government agency now, like that company is gonna owe a lot of money. And it's like, but those, those things I feel were are like little, things you could get away with like that were far more common. Um, now companies are far more concerned with insurance and as they should be, you know, but at the same time you lose a little when like you don't get to do things like that anymore. Lose a little character to the industry. Yeah, yeah. A, a little bit. <laughs> what about as you, as you look ahead, obviously you have kind of your own idea for what you'd like to do here. Um, what is the industry going to look like? What what are the, what, what effects has COVID had on it uh, that might stick around, and, and what will happen to Oregon wine in the future? I think, like, for, as far as COVID, for people like us, we were hit differently without the tasting room, the really built-up wine club, the, with the shipments going out regularly. Um, talking to people that I know, like the winery that I used to work at, their tasting room manager says there's like the last time I asked him this question is their sales were up from that same time previous year because they've got that infrastructure of regular shipments across the country to their distributors. They've got the wine club and those kind of things where we still have our small, like it's not like a wine club. We have our like core group of people who are interested in our wines and that's super helpful, but it's not like the established shipping across the country kind of 
thing. So like the, the wineries of those sizes are, I think, probably perfectly fine. Um, and I'd be a little more concerned with probably like the very, very large ones. They've probably got more things to be worried and concerned about. Whereas smaller to medium ones are probably perfectly fine. Um, I see like a, in the future, just like a good continued difference between the different sizes. Like you still have our operation size and how we do things here. And, but you have more of those just like beautiful buildings. Like a tasting room, like I just said, used to be crappy wood paneling and like the, it itself was not a interesting place to be, like inside the tasting room. Whereas now it's like the tasting rooms are old farmhouses that have been renovated. There's some money that these places have so they can just do a full like historical building renovation. I mean, what the uh, Flaneur has done with the granary in Carlton, like the, that is the coolest thing ever. Like I would love to see more, much more of that, but you can only do that with tons of money and you can only do that if the industry grows and attracts the people with that type of money. Mm -hmm. um, and, but we're still Oregon, we're not Napa. We're not California, and so I think that is a, a main thing. Like we're, we're inching closer, but I think no matter what, we're always going to be different from that. Um, it's it's interesting seeing how how things develop and how things change. Just having been around as a little kid and been around it, like people talk about how you know when you meet new people in the industry like, oh, how many harvests have you worked and people oh i did this many in new zealand that's uh, how many do you have and like my joke is like uh 32 <laughs> 32 years old so like one for each year because like I, I i've been in a winery every single year for every like harvest time there hasn't been a year where i haven't been in a winery like as an infant like six months old i'm not making wine i'm not doing anything but like my dad had me in one of those baby backpacks and i was in there right there the whole time and so like I've had enough time to see those differences and those changes and I feel like if you're newer, like five, ten years to the industry, like it's still still noticeable changes, but you know, not so much. But like really over like the last 30 years, it's, it's kind of tremendously different. You might get 90 vintages, the same state. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. The goal is to one day have like, and I won't get to see it, or hopefully I, hopefully I would get to see it, but like one of those century farm signs you see driving in the country and it's like 18 so-and-so and like, and it's like, okay, that'd be nice. I, I want a century, I want that sign. Maybe I'll just go steal the sign, but like I want the century farm in the family. That'd be cool. You could ask for like a half century farm. Yeah, or a quarter we'll century. Make, well, yeah. I mean, they, they gotta make signs yeah. like that. <laughs> I like my Shehalem sign, the wine grower association we have out, but like a nice century farm sign would be nice. <laughs> So you talked a bit about the, about the future plans for, for here. I'm curious, as you look ahead for yourself, uh, obviously this is something that's, that's going to be part of you. Uh, what else uh, are you looking ahead to, both uh, sort of in wine and, and outside of wine? Inside wine is just would be developing this kind of in line with what my father wanted, um, doing things different, like expanding into different states and distributing. and. My dad did not like airplanes or, you know, so actually going on sales trips to different places. Like, I think the farthest my dad, like my dad's range was like Eugene, Bend, and Vancouver. Like those are places he'd go for sales things, but anything past that he had no interest in, in going. Um, 
And so like making changes like that, um, to, to like to help, to help grow the business and be able to afford the things that he had in mind, like the gravity flow winery in the hillside. Um, and as far as myself, it's just, it's like, so as a kid, like I, I saw that kind of aspect of my dad, like I'd go to Disneyland with like on my mom's side and like my dad never did anything like that. Like a trip, a vacation for us was to the coast, you know, and it's like spend a couple days at like a nice place on the coast. Um, like I'm definitely falling in that. <laughs> like I have my daughter and you know, she's about to be 14, but her mom is the one who goes on the vacations and it's like I'm the one who takes her to the coast and it's, so I, I'm, I have fallen in, I won't say a trap, but like I'm doing the same thing that my dad was doing that I used to look at. I mean, like, I don't understand that. That's, that's so odd. Like, why don't you want to go on an airplane and go on vacation? And it's like, now I really don't see a whole lot of interest in it. Like there's nice places outside of Oregon, but I feel uncomfortable when I leave like this little boundary of the Willamette Valley. Like you drive south enough and you're like, the trees don't look right. There's different trees. You drive up into Washington, you're like, these trees are different too. Like, I don't like this. Like, I very much like my little pocket of Oregon and continue to stay here. You know, I know lots of people in the industry have ideas about moving to different places and working in different places. And it's like, I kind of like it here. So like the plan is just to continue moving forward with Gresser, get it to the point like that my dad shared it with us and get it to a point that if my daughter was interested, it would be like an easy transition as opposed to kind of like, my dad passed away unexpectedly. So it wasn't like it was like, this is how he wanted to pass it over to us. Like he would have wanted it to be much smoother and no one could have seen COVID kind of stuff coming. And so, but like get everything to a place where if my daughter's interested, it's, it's a much easier transition. Um, She's got the help she needs, mm -hmm. like as far as like potential staff. So if she doesn't want to be like, and there's like the term backbreaking labor and that's exactly what it is. Cause the vines are like Burgundian space. So they, they're grown in that style too. They're like a foot off the ground, most of them. So it's like, it's constant bending over and it does hurt your back. Um, like there's a part of the year during pruning where I don't even make my bed just cause it's, it hurts to bend over and make my bed and get into the far corner. And it's like, I don't care. So I'm not going to do it. It hurts. So like if she wants to avoid that and I can like set it up so that she can avoid it, that's what I want to do. Um, and just, yeah, just continued, continued growth of the brand in a relatively small scale. I don't, as much as I would want, you know, like a Jay Christopher style winery, that building is beautiful. Like it fits into the hillside. Like it's, it's a gorgeous estate vineyard surrounding it. The oak trees, it's all very lovely. But that's not what I want. I would max myself out at 5,000 cases. And like, that's a rule that I intend to kind of stick to. Like, and that, that means keeping things small. You can't really do that when you have a seller staff of multiple people. So you still have to be able to do things yourself. And so just, yeah, set up so that we can continue to grow in that very small, reasonable scale for us. You're very, very old, 32. Compl complaining about your back, not wanting to get on airplanes. Like, yeah. I get it. Yeah. I get it. <laughs> I like it's, it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely, like I said, it didn't understand it when I saw it in my dad, and it, it very much makes sense now. <laughs> very much so. So all the questions that I have for you, Nicholas, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? I think that was very thorough. Uh, 
Well, thank you so much for your time, yeah. for inviting us up to the space and telling us your story, and uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Awesome. Awesome, awesome. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.